The book of Genesis was written by Moses as he was with the children of Israel in the wilderness. It is written in narrative, stories of people whose names have become well-known. Adam and Eve, Abraham, Sarah, Ishmael, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel, Joseph. All these names, most of these names, many of these people have become giants of the faith. In fact, we not only see their names in Genesis, they're repeated in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. These names show up again, giving us examples of how to live, sometimes how not to live, the Christian life. We learn that the founding of the nation of Israel comes from these families. And and we've learned these giants of the faith are, are no different, absolutely no different than you and me. Sometimes we put these people on a pedestal. And the only person who belongs on the pedestal is who? God. We've learned from people that they are like, these people, they are like you and me. In James chapter 5, verse 17, James says this. Elijah, great man, great godly giant of the Old Testament. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And he prayed again and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. James says Elijah was a man, human being, just like we are. And that could be said of every person that we studied in Genesis. Again, real people like you and me experiencing great blessings experiencing deep disappointments. We, we, we've celebrated with them the birth uh, of their sometimes long-awaited children. We followed them through grief. Uh, we, we, have, we have considered their stories of incredible faith, of unbelievable trust, of, of sincere forgiveness, of, of significant sacrifice, giants of the faith, and yet they were, they were human beings like us. They didn't always get it right. You relate to that? They experienced challenges in relationships. They struggled in their marriages. They had difficulties with their children. Sometimes they got tired of waiting on God. Anyone relate to that? Sometimes they got so impatient with God, they just took matters into their own hands. They blamed others for their shortcomings. Certainly, that can't relate to anyone. They made bad decisions. They got caught in lies and deceit. Anxiety caused sleepless nights. Temptation was all around them, and sometimes they gave in to the temptations. Parents showed favoritism and paid the price. Siblings fought. Families were filled with tension. We we followed these people like you and me who laughed and and cried and prepared for their death. From the first story to the end, there is one constant, and that is the person of God who never changes. The one, the only one who can be trusted the only one at work in every circumstance in our life. 
One commentator explains Genesis like this. In the unfolding of this grand program of God, Genesis introduces the reader to the nature of God as the sovereign Lord over the universe who will move heaven and earth to establish His will. And that's what He will do. He will move heaven and earth to establish His will. And in Genesis, we have found, as we introduce this, we found these two strands that just, that just work their way through Genesis. The first strand is the person of God. He's always there. He's not only through Genesis, he's through every book of the Bible. He's through every experience in our life. And he's always constant. And he's always solid. And we can trust in him. And we can depend on him. The person of God. The second strand we've seen in Genesis is the response of, uh, of men and women, right? How do we respond to God? How do we respond to God when we're disappointed? How do we respond to God when we're tired of waiting? How do we respond to God when, when, when we're scared? And we see the response of, of man kind of like this. And here through Genesis is just intertwined this God of the universe who moves heaven and earth to get his will done in, in, in man's response that sometimes great faith, sometimes scared to death, just like us. So here's what I want to do today as we wrap up Genesis. I want to, go, I want to, I want to, I want to end just like we started, two bookends. I want to go through the names of God that we've learned through Genesis. We can't do all of them, but some of the names of God we've learned in Genesis. And I want us to think about who God is, and then we're going to call for a response. How do we respond to this God who will move heaven and earth to get His will done? How are we personally, practically in our life going to respond to Him? All right? So here's the first one. The first name of God he uses to describe himself is found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. And it means mighty creator. It means power. It means sovereignty. It means the one who has authority over all things. We saw in Genesis, in Scripture, the word El means God. We'll see it in names sometimes. Israel uh, uh, struggles with God, wrestles with God. We've seen it in names as we've gone through it. El is always the singular for God. Elohim is the plural. And it's not that God is, is introducing Himself as the Trinity. It is called a plural of intensity or a plural of majesty. God elevates himself in this name. He elevates the greatness of his person. In the beginning, Elohim was. In the beginning, Elohim existed. He is eternal. When God starts his love letter to us, he doesn't prove that he's eternal. He just says, I am eternal. I am Elohim. I'm dependent on nothing for my existence. Elohim is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He spoke the world into existence. Where there was chaos, he brought order. 
Where there was darkness, he brought light. It was Elohim who created. Elohim created man and woman in his own image. And you know what? Still creating today, isn't he? He's still recreating men and women spiritually. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? He's a new creation. He's different. He's changed, transformed. The old is gone. The new has come. Now, here's a question. How will you respond to Elohim? Some of you are here today, and you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You are here, and you know the names of God. You know about God, but you've not trusted in Christ. You know that your life is filled with chaos inside. There's something within that's not right. Maybe you can't explain it, but there's a void going on in your life, a God-shaped void, and you're trying to fill it with other stuff. Some of you, at stage of your life, you're trying to fill it with relationships, and you have one relationship after another, but that void is not filled. Some of you <clears throat> may be trying to fill it with your, with your spouse. I, I did a, a wedding yesterday afternoon into yesterday evening, and uh, it was a beautiful day, beautiful wedding, beautiful bride and groom. The, 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 uh, the girl grew up here at the church. I remember when she was born. I am getting really old. And I stood there, and, uh, you know, every couple, they're like, this, they get these googly eyes. And everything. It's kind of disgusting, actually, when you, when you <laughs> see it. But one of the things we always say in premarital counseling, and I repeat it in the ceremony, as much as you love this other person, and you do, as evident, that person cannot meet your deepest need. That person's not God. And you got to make sure your life is centered and focused and grounded in Jesus Christ. That's why a lot of marriages struggle. Because a husband is trying to make his wife God. And a wife is trying to make her husband God. Man, that is a recipe for failure. It is only Elohim, the great God who loves you so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you on a cross, to give you significance, real significance, to give you security, real security, to give you acceptance. You are now part of his family, to forgive you, to give you the power to live a life pleasing to him. A lot of people say, you know, I never lived the Christian life because I can't do that. Exactly. You can't do it after you trust in Christ. When God brings you to himself, he gives you his Holy Spirit that allows you to live a life pleasing to Him. Have you trusted in Christ? Elohim is a great and powerful God that we've been learning about through uh, Genesis. Elohim, the, the plural, majesty and uh, plural of majesty and intensity. He created everything from nothing, spoke the world into existence, and then the mighty Creator got personal. Genesis chapter two. Verse 7, then the Lord God, now we have another name. First time we hear this name, Lord God, formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. This word is still Elohim, but now God adds this word, Yahweh. 
Yahweh Elohim. Sometimes when we uh, translate this uh, from our software over to the screen, it doesn't show up right, and this doesn't show up right, because this should be LORD in all caps. Every time you see LORD in all caps, that is a translation of the word Elohim. And here we see, look what, look what Yahweh Elohim does. Look what God wants us to see when he introduces himself as Yahweh. He, he stooped down to breathe into man the breath of life. Now, I don't know exactly how God breathed into man the breath of life. I don't know that. But the picture that we would think of is that God stoops down and gives this man almost, as it were, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation and breathes into that man the breath of life. And, and because he stooped down to do that, man became a living being. Yahweh God, a God who wants a personal relationship, a God who desires intimacy with you, a God who stooped down to breathe life into you through his son, Jesus Christ. He still stooped down in the New Testament. First Peter, when they hurled their insults at Jesus, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He instead entrusted himself to, to him who judges justly. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his stooping down, by his wounds, we have been healed. Now I know in our area, Most everyone has gone to church from the time they were young. So you may be here and you may know a lot about God. You know the stories about God. You know the story about him sending his son. You got the stories of the Old Testament. You you got the head knowledge of God. The question is, do you have a personal relationship with him? A personal relationship through Jesus Christ. That's what Yahweh Elohim desires. So I like to read about the presidents. And one of my favorites, favorite of many, is Abraham Lincoln. And it's fun to read books about Abraham Lincoln. I, I know a lot of facts about Abraham Lincoln. Right here. But I never met him. I didn't even live during his time. I don't know him personally. And that's where some of you are with God. That's where some of you are with Christ. You got the head knowledge. You know about it. You just haven't moved it down to your heart. You haven't allowed God to move it down to your heart. So that now you have a personal relationship with the living God. Some of you are believers But that relationship has grown cold. You've grown distant. And that happens in our walk with Christ. You're not alone in that. There are times in our walk, for whatever reason, maybe it's disappointment, maybe it's disobedience, maybe it's stress of a job situation. I don't know what it's going to be. But you get in those areas of your life, those stretches of your life when you say, man, I'll be honest with you, I'm not as close with God as I need to be. I've kind of put him on the back burner of my life. I don't, I don't feel that intimacy. I'm not, reading the, I'm not reading the word like I used to. Well, the day is the day to make that decision. I'm going to, I'm going to 
I'm going to re-up this thing. I'm, I'm going to, to, to re-access my relationship with Christ. Some, some of us treat Christ sometimes like apps on our phone, right? I got, I got a lot of apps on my phone. I even got folders of apps. But there are a lot of apps I never use. They're on my phone. I got them. I just don't use them. And there are many times we, we have a relationship with Christ. It's just, just not where it should be. Maybe that's you today. And maybe you would say, you know what? I hear you. I'm there. But I got to be really honest. I, I don't desire. There's, I'm just lacking a desire to get back. I'm lacking I'm like, I, like these, the, the flame that burned. Now it's like these embers smoldering. So I just invite you to pray, God, I desire to desire you. Give me the desire to desire you. I want to get back. I want to do the things you're calling me to do. Third name we learned about God. God Most High, El Elyon. This was right after, you remember in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 15, Abraham had fought a battle. He, de- he defeated his enemy, and he called God El Elyon, God Most High, the highest God, the most exalted God. Th- this name described God's sovereignty, and it describes his supremacy. He, he sovereignly protects and delivers and provides for his people. In, in the New Testament, we see it showing up again. Jesus is called Son of El Elyon, Son of the Most High. The Holy Spirit is called the power of the Most High. And believers, check this out, we're called servants of the Most High. Man, that is a privileged title, isn't it? Servants of the Most High. Thank you to Gary that today there's a lot of fear and anxiety going on, right? People just seem scared. The world is unstable. We, uh, we turn on the news or it shows up on our phone, breaking news, and, you know, this week on Friday something's going on and people are killed in Germany. Airports bombed. And there's this, this instability. The economy is not what we would want it to be. There's this political system. I tried to find a word to describe that. Crazy, maybe? Our, our country is redefining morality. Our country is taking it upon itself, the powers that be, to redefine what marriage is, the foundational unit of every civilization. Redefining sexuality. We live in some crazy times. And often, believers can get wound up just as tight as everyone else. But our challenge is, since we serve El Elyon, who is supreme, who is sovereign, who is our deliverer, who's our protector, we cannot get in the stream of everyone panicking. We should be the ones, right, demonstrating that, yeah, things are crazy, 
But we serve a God who is an anchor, who's solid, who's all-powerful, who's supreme. Our conversations not, should not be going down with those around us who are in fear and panic. Our conversations should be bringing them up to see the God who changes their life and eternity. Whether this world is crazy or not, it's just a little blip on the radar compared to eternity. And we have the opportunity to introduce people to El Elyon, the God who gives us everything we need, the God who is supreme and sovereign. How are we going to respond to that? Number four, El Roy, the God who sees me. Remember this one as we covered this story? God promised Abraham uh, that he was going to be a father of a great nation, but after many years of trying, he and Sarah didn't have any children. So she took matters in her own hands. She gave her Egyptian maidservant Hagar to uh, Abraham, and uh, he went right along with the plan. She, uh, Hagar became pregnant. Sarah became jealous and treated Hagar so badly that Hagar had to run uh, for her life. Hagar was alone in the desert thinking that she was going to die, and God met her there. It's so often God meets us in the desert, doesn't he? Meets her in the desert. He tells her she's not going to die. She's, in fact, supposed to return to Abraham and Sarah. The son she's carrying is going to be the father of a great nation. And then chapter 16, verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who, what? You are the God who sees me, for I have seen the one who sees me. I want to encourage some of you here today. You're going through some tough times. Maybe you feel like Hagar. You've been used, you've been mistreated, you've been rejected, you've been discarded, you feel alone in the desert. God's name is Elroy. He sees you. He not only sees you, but he comes to your aid. Jot down this passage, Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 3. But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, Jacob who formed you, uh, uh, he who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I love this. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Wherever you are, see God pointing his finger at you and saying, if you're a child of God, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'm, I'll be with you. When you, walk, when you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. When, you. when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will, will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And that same promise in the Old Testament, repeated in the New Testament in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews often will quote Old Testament passages. God has said, Hebrews 13, 5, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God sees you. So we can say with confidence, not fear, not anxiety, not panic. We can say with confidence, the Lord is my what? He's my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mortals do to me? God's name is Elroy. Wherever you are, if you're in your desert place and you feel alone, you're not. Elroy sees you and will come to your aid. Couple more. Number five. El Shaddai. Remember this one? The all sufficient one. 
So God gave Abraham uh, the promise that he was going to be a mighty nation, but he and Sarah still didn't have any children. Abraham's getting old, beyond childbearing years. Chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between you and you will, uh, between me and you, and, and will greatly increase your numbers. God Almighty, El Shaddai, it means all-sufficient one. It means God of the mountains. Just think of a, of a tall, powerful mountain range. It doesn't move. It's unshakable. It's going to be there through a millennium. God says, I'm like the mountains. I don't change. The God of the mountains, El Shaddai. Nothing is impossible with him. In fact, he works best in impossible situations. Sometimes in Scripture, he puts people in impossible situations so they can't get out of it. So they can't say, by my intellect, by my power, I figured out how to get out of this. He puts them in situations where they're helpless so they can say, only God could do that. I serve El Shaddai. Now, I know some of you are going through some impossible stuff. You're going through some difficult situations. For some of you, it's health situations. For some of you, it's job situations. Some of you, things going on with your kids. All kinds of stuff going on in life. Let me give a couple verses to you. I know a lot of you are looking for work, looking for jobs. And here are a couple verses I want you to jot down. Psalm 37, 25. David said, I was young and now I'm old, yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. That's a promise from the Lord. I don't, I don't know what God's going to give you. I know you're looking for a lot of opportunities and you're not turning down opportunities. You're, you're, you're chasing every lead. God's going to supply exactly what you need. It may not always be what we want, but it's going to be exactly what what we need. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. And my God will supply all your needs, all your needs, not your wants, but your needs according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. The context here is, is, is financial. The context here is the uh, God providing for the Philippians. And Paul reminded them that he would give them everything they need. It's not about prosperity theology. There are no promises of great wealth. Paul's just saying, we serve a God. He's El Shaddai. He'll take care of you. He's the all-sufficient one. He, he masters in impossible situations. One more. Remember this one? The Lord will provide. Yahweh, Yaira. Abraham and <clears throat> Sarah finally had a son. They were beyond happy. And then one day, God presented Abraham with an unthinkable, unthinkable instruction, almost seemingly out of the character of God. He, he told Abraham, take your, your son, that one and only son, that son you love, and I want you to sacrifice that son as a burnt offering to me. What would you do? Chapter 22, verse 9, Abraham answered, or when they, sorry, when they reached the place 
God had told him about Abraham built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it. He, he bound his son Isaac. Remember, Isaac was probably in, uh, in his older teens, maybe early 20s. He could have resisted his father, who's now like 110 years old. He bound his son Isaac. Isaac allowed it to happen. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood and then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of Yahweh called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Don't do anything to harm him. I now know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And then verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in the thicket, he saw a ram caught by the horns. He went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the place what? Yahweh, Yahweh. The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. God is still Yahweh Yireh. He's still the one who provides for you. Exactly what you need. Exactly when you need it. You can depend on Him. You can trust Him. He doesn't change. He's the God who loves you so much. He desires this intimate relationship with you. He stooped down to breathe in the man the breath of life, and then he stooped down to hang on a cross and die there for our sins. Now, here's the question. God is the almighty, powerful provider, protector, supplier. The question is, how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond? We said that in Genesis, the people were just like you and me, right? They had great moments, just like us. And they had some moments they probably would just as soon hadn't been recorded in Scripture, just like us. They were infected by sin. They are messed up and broken people but they served a great God. I think a lot of times today, we talk a lot about our brokenness. That's kind of the buzzword in a lot of songs that are written, Christian songs, in a lot of books that are written, our brokenness. And we like to talk about our brokenness because quite honestly, two things, we're broken and if we talk about how broken we are, it makes us feel better about some of the decisions we're making. So we can relate to that. I'm a broken person. And that's true. We are. And we, and we need to talk about that. But it doesn't stop there. See, we don't have to stay in that broken state. God can give us everything we need. He's the remedy to our brokenness. That's why he, Jesus came. A few years ago, we were in uh, India, and uh, we went into New Delhi. And we went back into this pretty tough area of New Delhi, uh, kind of in a, in, a, in a squalor area. And then it got even worse. Behind the squalor area, there was a road that, that the government had made these houses for lepers. 
And we walked down the street and we saw um, men and women who were infected with leprosy. And their, a lot of their hands were gone. A lot of their legs were gone, been worn away by infection and stuff. And, uh, and their children were like playing around them. And then you walk to the end of it and there was this like terrible trash heap. Nasty. Now, why aren't there leper colonies in the United States? Because there's a remedy. There's a medical remedy for leprosy. You don't have to have leprosy. There's a remedy for that. Well, sometimes believers like live in this spiritual leper state in their brokenness. We don't have to live there. Are we broken? Yeah, but Jesus has provided a remedy. So we need to, to live like more like people whose lives have been remedied by Christ rather than broken people. If I live like a broken person, what attractiveness am I to the world? I'm just, I'm just fitting in. They're broken as well. But if I can demonstrate, I'm just like you, I am broken, but Jesus Christ came and he's changed my life. He's changed me from the inside out. Now I have a message to share. Not just in words, but with my life. See, the question is, as broken people remedied by Jesus Christ, knowing who God is, how are we going to respond? People in Genesis, we looked at their lives. Some of them were messes. But in Hebrews, looking back, the writer looks at their life, and in chapter 11 says this. We don't have time to read all of them. I put all these verses in your notes. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, Noah, who was warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. Noah wasn't perfect, but by faith, he trusted in God. By faith, Abraham. We saw Abraham wasn't perfect. But by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. By faith, Sarah, well past her childbearing age. Remember, Broken in her brokenness, she gave Hagar to Abraham. But check out 11, chapter 11, verse 11. She, uh, who was well past her childbearing age, was, uh, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful to the promises that he had given. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed his sons. By faith, Joseph, when, he was, uh, when, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction concerning his burial of his bones. Imperfect people changed by God. That's the message of Genesis. That's the message of Jesus Christ. So here's what I want you to do. There are cards at the end of the aisle. If you would pass those down. When we started uh, this series, I asked you this question, <clears throat> who do you need God to be? What's going on in your life? Who do you need God to be for you? Of all those names. And you, we wrote down some things. I ask you to keep those cards. Today, a little different. The question is today, who do you need, who does God need you to be? How are you going to respond to God? How, how are you going to see the, the, the power 
and the intimacy of His person and respond to that. And so on your card, I'm going to ask you to do this. Write by faith your name and then a comma. By faith, Ron, comma. By faith, Tom, comma. By faith, Sue, comma. Whatever your name is. And then put on there how you're going to respond to God. I, don't, don't put ten things. Let's just look at one. One thing I'm going to trust God for. By faith, I'm going to trust God for the right relationship. I'm not going to take matters in my own hand. By faith, I'm going to trust God to provide and protect my job. I'm not going to cut corners in the marketplace. By faith, I am going to do everything I can to make my marriage work. I'm not going to throw in the towel when things get tough. By faith, I'm going to resist the real temptation that is right in front of me today. Whatever your issue is, whatever you feel God calling you today, write that down. And then today, I'm going to ask you to drop it off under the cross. There's, no, there's nothing magical about that. It's just our way of saying, God, I'm giving it to you.